thank you once again for uh, joining us back on the Porch Project. Tonight, we're going to talk about salvation. We have probably all heard from some pastor somewhere at some point that about 30 to 40 to 50 to 90 percent of the churchgoers aren't actually saved. Uh, one statistic that I looked up and found kind of in research for this podcast uh, said 70 to 75 percent. Uh, whether that number is accurate or not, I don't know, but I would say that it's probably a pretty good uh, subject to talk about. And so we want to take time for this episode to talk about salvation, walk through that, and what the specifics are. So if there is any uncertainty or uh, we're not completely clear on that, that hopefully we can have some clarity. And if we're unsaved, if we haven't come to know Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, then hopefully we'll make that decision after listening to this. And so with that being said, I want to ask you there, Friar Myers, uh, What's your take on salvation? So I've grown up in church, and I've spent a lot of time reading the Bible and a lot of time studying the Bible, and I'm sure that you guys have have done just as much, if not more, and I'm sure there are stories that kind of stick out to you guys that really kind of freak you out and make you scratch your head, and you're like, what is this talking about? You know, think of, think of, Saul's daughter who falls in love with David and for David to, to marry this particular woman, what is the price that had to be paid? Well, it's a hundred Philistine foreskins. So if you ever think that your job is bad, think of the guy who had to either go grab the foreskins or count the foreskins. That's not a good day. No, it is not. But I remember Ooh. reading that and you're like, what in the world is this talking about? What in the world is, is this book really about? And, and there, are, there are thousands or hundreds of stories like that in the Bible that really make you a little bit uncomfortable, right? And if you read Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, and this is written in red, so it's, it's the words of Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I remember the first time I read that, it's pretty scary. It's pretty daunting. Like, it's, it's not a comforting verse. So then maybe you read the next verse, and maybe it's a little bit more comforting, comforting to you, and it's not. Because verse 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I, meaning, meaning the Lord, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, Will, that really speaks into what you were just saying about how there are several people in the church that, that may think they're saved but really aren't. You know, when, when we talk about many people, that could mean 10, 20, 30, 50, maybe 100. Like, if, if we tell people there were many people in our church service on Sunday morning, many people to us is going to mean like 60. But to God or to Jesus, many people means millions or billions. So when he says many people are going to think that they were saved, but they weren't, like that's, that's scary. So I think that's why it's so important for us to really have a good grasp and handle and understanding on what salvation actually is. And 
again, growing up in church, we're taught that the way to salvation is through saying a prayer, right? It's, it's the sinner's prayer. And we're going to get into that here in a, a minute. But David Platt, who is a really prominent Christian author today, super deep, super theological, uh, brilliant, brilliant mind when it comes to Christian perspectives and things like that. He has a quote, and it says, should it concern us that the Bible never calls us to ask Jesus into our hearts? Should it concern us that the Bible never mentions such a superstitious sinner's prayer, and yet that is exactly what we have sold to so many as salvation? Now, that is true, and what he is saying does need to be grasped, and that does need to be understood, but at the same time, there's also got to be a starting point. There's also got to be a starting block for, for people to cross over from unsaved to saved. Both of you guys sitting here tonight, you work with youth and you work with kids, and one of the easiest ways to introduce them to salvation is through this prayer. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, then come visit some of the guys at the Church at West Gant, where we proclaim Jesus together in truth, love, and life. We have an English service at 10.30 on Sundays and a service in Spanish at 2 p.m. on Sundays. You can also check out our sermons anywhere you listen to podcasts. So check us out on our Facebook page or at our website, www.thechurchatwg.com. So welcome back. Will, Chris, I know both of you guys work with youth and kids, and we had just left off talking about the sinner's prayer, and even though what David Platt is saying is true, there is some scriptural backing to the need for that prayer as a starting point. So, so Will, why don't you speak into why we say that prayer, why we introduce it as a prayer to someone who is not saved or someone who is lost and needs salvation? So... With that, I think we have to go to to Romans 10, uh, verse 9, and that says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, Verse 10 goes on to say, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So from that standpoint... I feel, excuse me. I feel like he what he is saying is correct. That that is not biblical. That uh, there there's no like specific set of scriptures or verses that say that. However, that confession with the mouth, I think, is where that sinner's prayer kind of comes in. I I will also say that. For me, the process of salvation kind of starts in the pew, right? So the Holy Spirit convicts us, and then we have to believe, which would be the second part of that verse 9 where it says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you have this form of belief, and then from that you step forward to the, the pastor or whoever's leading you through that process or guiding you through that process. And I will specifically say the that's not the person who's getting you saved. Um, I know that that a lot of times is what you hear, but that's not the person who saved you. God is the one who saves you in that. But whoever it is that you go to, I think that that sinner's prayer is 
just a tool. I know that me specifically, I, depending on service and day and if I remember right or not, that most of the time I don't specifically say that one. However, I will say some kind of version of that where it's a confession of sin, it's an, uh, a, you know, it's an acceptance of God, and it's a surrendering to Jesus. And I, I think that's the biggest part of salvation. I, I don't think it's necessarily a prayer. I think it's a surrendering. Whenever we talk about salvation or we get into this salvation point, my opinion on all of that is and and what I think is scripturally sound it it's has nothing necessarily to do with a prayer it's a it's an actual occurrence it's a connection to God with the Holy Spirit piercing of the heart convicting us us realizing that we have to surrender to Jesus for who he is for what he's done for all those things and then we literally surrender our lives to him uh, and so from that standpoint of salvation, then when we surrender our life over, we're saying no more to my old. It's however you want, Jesus. Whatever my dreams were, whatever my hopes were, whatever my plans are, those are all to the side. If you want to use those, great. But it's yours. My life, my everything is yours. Family, funds, uh, personal items, whatever it may be, it's all yours and for your will and for your bidding. Uh, we do get into that master uh, aspect of that where it's uh, we're sub subjects of God, where he's our master, he's our leader. Um, he, he is going to be the one who tells us how to proceed as we go through the rest of our lives. And so it's just... A literal surrendering and so when we say that Jesus is Lord that's that confession piece where it's it's complete surrender to him and so I think that is why so many pastors go to this um, salvation prayer yes it's not scripturally based with you know Peter saying you've got to say this at this point and all that but it is one of those that from us who are imperfect people, who don't know the hearts, it provides us a way to let the people who are accepting of Jesus go through that process and truly accept him by hitting the points that they need to from that. Yeah, I think so many times we confuse, especially children and youth who don't have a full understanding yet. Uh, of the of the full gospel and kind of where that takes them, but but for anybody to be honest, we we confuse the idea that this is a that the the prayer that we're praying is um, it is a confession. But if that is a true confession, it alters the way we live moving forward. We confuse that with the idea that oh that this prayer itself is what saves me, and it's like that that prayer does not save you. It is by God's grace that you are saved through faith. And so the confession of your mouth leads to that, but a, a true confession leads to repentance and leads to a different lifestyle. A lot of times I think people think that this prayer is this magic bullet where it's like, oh, if I just say this prayer, then I'm good for the rest of my life and it doesn't matter what I do or where I go. 
and and while that is true that there is grace that covers all those things, there's forgiveness for all of those things. But but even Paul, in his own language, we talked about that Romans uh, Romans ten, and in other chapters, Paul addresses that same idea of like if should I just keep sinning so that grace can abound? And he's like, absolutely not. Like heaven forbid that we as believers who have confessed Jesus as our Lord would then turn right back around and return to our own vomit. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, but I think we miscommunicate that a lot. And that's why we have so many people in our churches who think I'm, I'm a born again believer. I'm saved. I'm regenerated. I'm, I'm in the faith, right? Like I'm going to hear the words from Jesus one day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And they're basing that off of the idea that I walked an aisle at one point, I said a prayer with a pastor, and they dunked me in a baptistry at some point, but I never really lived out the confession that I gave on that day. And without living out that confession, that confession is pretty meaningless. And and I want to be careful because we can, we can hear that, and you can easily turn that into a works-based salvation, where it's like, well, excuse me, well, then it must mean that I've got to confess with my mouth, but then I got to go do all of these things to earn my salvation. It's like, no, 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 you don't do those things to earn your salvation, but those things should be a natural byproduct or outcome of your salvation. If I've truly made Jesus the Lord of my life, the natural outcome of that is that there should be fruit in my life. There should be change. There should be a difference in how I'm living. And that is the evidence that that confession was real. Without that evidence, I have no real assurance that I really confess Jesus as my Lord. I probably just said a prayer to make myself feel good that day and then got wet and came out just as lost as I ever was. So I think we do our kids and our youth a disservice when we just say, hey, repeat the sinner's prayer with me, and we give them no follow-up to that to say, hey, here's what you're doing. You are confessing Jesus as your Lord, and that's not just for this 5-second, 30-second prayer. This is for the rest of your life. We are we are altering who has, like Will said, who has the the kingship over my life, whose whose will and whose way I'm going to follow. Um, that is changing from this point forward in the rest of my life, and that is what a true confession is. So at this point, I'd, I'd like to kind of back up a little bit and talk through what salvation is, because each of you have said some really key and critical things. Will, I really like what you said a minute ago when you said that a lot of people believe that it starts in the pew. And it does start in the pew, assuming you're in a place that has pews, but salvation yeah. can't occur anywhere. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of people no, have no, this. No, Wes. Only here at West Camp. That's the only <laughs> no, I'm just Definitely just not true. But a lot of people have this misconception that in church equals in Christ. But we know that that's, that's not true. So... We've talked about what salvation is. Salvation is a surrenderance. Will, you talked a lot about this a minute ago when you talked about all of the things and all of the different aspects of your life that you do have to surrender to, as Chris said, Jesus Christ who becomes the Lord of your life. There's another piece of, of scripture that comes out of John chapter 3, verse 5, when, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he starts off by saying, truly, and isn't it good that Jesus always tells the truth, but he says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Chris, this talks a little bit about what you were saying. There has to be that time when you are born again. You have to be able to recall that moment in your life, just as you would your own birthday. You have to be able to recall that moment of salvation when your life changed forevermore. 
Uh, it, it, you know, some people like like Pap. He can tell you the exact time, the exact place, the exact minute, and that's fantastic. People like me, I can't tell you the exact time, place. I can tell you the the location, uh, but I know that it happened. I can look back on my life and know that there was that shift. So, salvation. It is declaring with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, right? We've, we've said that. We agree on that. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to talk through that sinner's prayer, and we're going to validate the language that is used, and we're going to validate the lines and back up some of the, the things that we say with some of the whys in that sinner's prayer. So usually when, when we say the sinner's prayer, what's the first thing we say? Jesus Christ. Why is that? I think it goes back to that that confession piece, uh, specifically going to Jesus, starting with Him, because that's where salvation starts. He is the way, the truth. There, there's no other way. So, I think you have to go and start with Jesus. Uh, I think, from that standpoint, like I said, it, it goes to that confession piece where you, you're confessing to this specific person if if I was trying to talk to you Wes I would say Wes you know unless you're already looking at me I'm going to call your name and so I think it I think it goes to that where we're saying Jesus and then as we start into that uh, through that confession piece of you know I'm a failure. I need you. Well, Will, I think that you were looking at my page because you just stole my note because you're exactly right. When when you say Jesus Christ, it eliminates any doubt. It eliminates any confusion because God, God can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If there's a, a Muslim individual listening to this podcast or if there's a Muslim listening to a church service, like they're going to hear the word God and that's going to resonate with them even though God may not mean the same thing. They may hear God but understand Allah. Or if there's a, a Hindu person, they're going to they're going to understand God to a degree or an extent. And and that's probably not even right for me to say because they are devout in their belief and they they do know who their God is. But God can be misconceived and misperceived, which is why, as Christians, we say Jesus Christ. Salvation starts with Jesus Christ. His name alone is the dividing factor. Chris, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. I think when you look to, uh, I think Will said a very important piece in that, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's like, well, then there's no other name by which I need to call out for my salvation, right? And that's even a, a verse out of Scripture of, like, this is the only name that I can go to. And so uh, I think uh, just like that, you know, if I'm teaching my kids um, uh, the concept of, of asking forgiveness, um, they're not going to come ask me for forgiveness for hitting their brother. They need to go to their brother and say, Gavin, will you forgive me? for offending you. I, th it's, I didn't offend dad. I didn't offend mom. I didn't offend Joe down the street. I offended Gavin. And so they need to call his name as the one that they're asking for that forgiveness from. And so in the same way in this, in this prayer, 
Uh, and again, nothing magical about these words, and I will say that probably a thousand times throughout this podcast. There's nothing magical about that, but it does direct the heart of the, the person being led to Jesus, that person who's seeking salvation. It directs them to an understanding that they're not seeking that salvation from any other name besides the name of Jesus Christ, because that is the only name by which they can be saved. And so it's important that we start there, that it's not, we're not praying to Buddha, we're not praying to Allah, we're not praying to any other God, we're not crying out to Baal, right? We are crying out to Jesus Christ and saying, I have offended you, I have fallen from you, I have sinned, and I need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in my life to overcome that sin. So Acts 4.12 backs up exactly what you were just saying. Uh, under no other name, or excuse me, there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So it starts with Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. And typically the next line that we'll say in that prayer, so we'll say, Jesus Christ, I know that I'm a sinner. There's a lot of debate, even amongst Christians, on whether people or children specifically are born knowing how to sin or if they are taught how to sin. Will, you're smiling big. You've got two little youngins. What do you think? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> it's not taught, okay? It, <laughs> I've heard it described, and I don't really know how accurate this description was, but I've heard it described um, from the standpoint when Adam sinned, sin entered his blood when Jesus is born or when we have the immaculate conception with Jesus right his blood comes from the father meaning God the father and so therefore Jesus was fully man from uh, from Mary about said Martha, and I don't know why, <laughs> from Mary, right? And uh, fully God from God the Father. And so f the sin wasn't in the blood like that. However, not saying that Jesus didn't have, wasn't tempted, but he didn't have the, f I don't want to say he didn't have the full sin nature because that doesn't make it sound right because he was fully man but he had the ability to withstand as well. And so from my thoughts in that is that we have this sin nature coming from Adam. It's, it's, it's there from the, from the get-go. I think that we are, we are more prone to certain sins, and I think that's specific amongst all of us. But we sin. You don't have to teach a toddler how to pitch a fit because she got something taken from her. Now, Will, I don't know. I, I, can, I can see how Ryan or, or Lila could, could learn how to pitch a fit based on some of your reactions to, to things that happen. If you're talking about the egg incident, <laughs> I am, was, was highly upset. No, I'm just um, no I, I have to go. I'm... I'm She's probably going to listen to the podcast to know it's coming, but the prank is still coming for sure. <laughs> be warned. You, anytime you crack an egg on my head, you better be ready. In fact, it may have already happened before she gets to listen exactly. to this podcast, which, <laughs> which would make will, that even better. Exactly. <laughs> it has been planned. <laughs> Stephanie, it's coming. Prepare yourself. It was, it was, it was prophetic speech. <laughs> 
But like I said, it, you know, with that sin, it's not something that we have to learn. You take, again, I have a two-year-old. You take her, you stick her out there. At some point, it's going to happen. She's going to fall short of the glory She's of God. She's going to fall short of the glory of God. My six-year-old is going to do the same thing. If I look at her and say, why did you do this? Or did you, you know, even simplest things, brushing your teeth. Did you brush your teeth? She might tell me yes and not have brushed her teeth. <laughs> she may tell me no. That's not something she saw dad do. Like, dad didn't go. Well, did you brush your teeth? <laughs> no. You know, like, it, like it's something that's in nature. Well, I so, heard a sermon recently, and it was it was a pastor talking about this very thing, and, and he said he, he's a lot like I am. He's, he's not a youth guy by any means. He's not a kid's guy by any means uh, as far as, as ministry is concerned. And he said early on in his ministry, they placed him in the children's ministry for like a minute. And he was quickly removed because he was down in the nursery. He was teaching them through the story of David in the lion's den. And he encouraged you to, to not share that chil- uh, story with your children uh, because it'll probably give them night terrors and keep them up late at night. And they're going to think that they're going to fall into a lion's pit and God's going to have to come <laughs> bail them out and that kind of thing. But he said they, they were talking about the story of, of Daniel in the lion's den, and one little boy in the class had a stuffed lion, and another little boy came up and snatched the stuffed lion away, and without any hesitation, the original owner of said lion just turns around and bites the other kid, (laughs) and he's like, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that child has never seen his mother or his father bite the other one after an argument. Hey, honey, did you vacuum? No. And then all of a sudden they get a chunk (laughs) taken out of their arm from being bit. Like, like kids don't, don't just see that. They don't learn that. And then it was really funny because he was like, well, well, what'd you do? What'd you do? And he's like, I stood there and watched. And he said, I was raised on the farm where I come from. When dogs would start fighting, we'd, we'd just spray them with the garden hose and get them to break it up, but we didn't have a garden hose in the nursery. So. <laughs> but it goes to prove the point that children don't have to be taught how to sin. Chris, you're also a parent. I'm sure you can speak a lot into this. Yeah, I think that I always tell people as parents it's that the task of a parent is to teach a child how to do what's right, not to teach a child to do what's wrong. And the reason that you have to differentiate that is because the child naturally tends to do what's wrong rather than doing what's right. And that's true for all of us. Even at 38 years old, my tendency is to bend towards what's wrong, not what's right. And so I I have taught myself and trained myself and through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life and the fruit of of the work of the Holy Spirit in me have gotten to a place where self-discipline kicks in, that fruit of the Spirit that allows me to look at that temptation and not do it. But, But whether you believe in... Um, you know, the original sin being passed down through bloodlines or whether that's just our sin nature that is now, you know, a part of the entire creation that has affected the whole world doesn't really change the fact that Paul's statement that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God doesn't matter if we were born with it or made a decision at some point to do that doesn't change the fact that 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 verse is still true. <laughs> so we, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether we were born that way or made a choice to do those things. We have all done that. And so we are all in need of salvation. We're all in need of God's forgiveness. My personal stance on that as I read through scripture and I look at different passages is that, yeah, I think that we are born into this sin nature. 
that we come into this world. Again, you can go to Romans. Uh, Paul talks about it a little bit uh, there. He talks about it in some other books of the Bible, but, it, but he, he talks about this idea that through one man's sin entered the world, and because of that, it has affected every man since then, right? Like it is, it is a carried thing that just that just continues on. It is a hereditary issue that we all carry inside of us. And so that's my personal stance on it. But whether you deny that or not doesn't change the fact that I can tell you with all three of my kids that <laughs> within just a couple of days, I'd be like, <laughs> you need God's grace. <laughs> like you, have, you are in need of salvation, child. Yeah. You, um, you need God's grace and my mercy. Right that's right, my mercy. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, my job as a parent is to lead my child to understand what's right because they don't come into this world with, an, with a direct understanding of this is right, this is wrong. They just do. Um, and anybody who had to read the book Lord of the Flies when they were in high school would know that our tendency is to let society just tank. We just head towards the wrong things all the time. Well, and you've both spoken into this, but... But every inclination that we have, every natural tendency that we as human beings have is towards sin. Like that is our default. That is kind of how we are by nature, which is why church and which is why prayer and reading the Bible and things like that are so important. Romans 3.10 tells us that, that there is no, not one who is righteous, no, not one. So no one in this world is righteous. No one in this world is good naturally, which is why Christianity is not about what we've done for God, right? It's all about what he's done through us, or excuse me, for us through his son, Jesus. So we go back to Jesus, and the next line that we typically say is, I know that I'm a sinner. I need you as my savior. We need to be saved. But what do we need to be saved from? Sin. Yeah. Um, sorry. That's a Sunday school answer. Um, no, we need to be saved from sin. I mean, that is just what it is. Any, any uh, basic study of, of Christian theology tells us that the, the problem that has been created since the fall, the problem that has existed in this world since Genesis 3, is that there is a divide between us and God and what was supposed to be a hand-in-hand -hand relationship uh, became a divide that could only be bridged by the sacrifice of Jesus, of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we all need that salvation because we all have sinned and any amount of sin in our lives because that verse is true that there isn't one that's righteous. No, not one. Because that's true about me means that I need a Savior. Um, I heard it described really, really well one time. I'll see if I can remember this and say this right. If it doesn't make any sense, just ignore it and move on. Um, but I heard it said one time that it's like we can imagine kind of all of our lives as like we, ha we each have these, these credit cards that we're using. Um, and I have, uh, by using my credit card, I have maxed it out. I, I, have, I have a debt that needs to be paid. And because I have maxed out my own card, I can't pay my debt because I, I have no resources to pay that debt with. And I can't go to Will and ask Will to pay my debt because Will's credit card is maxed out. He has no ability to pay my card. I can't go to Wes. I can't go to my wife. I can't go to my kids. Like none of those people can pay my debt because they are all in the same situation that I'm in. We are spiritually bankrupt and have no ability to pay back our debt. And so what it took was a person who could come into this world without that debt, without that need, and had the resources to pay the debt for us. 
which is why we, we have to believe uh, a couple things about Jesus in that. We have to believe, number one, that he came to be our Savior, and we have to believe that he led, led a sinless life for 33 years because if Jesus even sinned once in those 33 years, he carries the same debt that I carry and therefore cannot be my Savior. And so we have to believe that. So what do I need to be saved from? I need to be saved from sin, and there's only one person who allows that or even has the ability to allow that for me in my life. That's Jesus Christ. The only way it can happen. Yeah, because we're totally incapable of, of saving ourselves. As, as you just said, we we may think that we're capable of saving ourselves, and we'll we'll tell ourselves all of these lies, and, and we'll say that we're going to do better, we're going to do better, we're going to do better. But ultimately, how does that work out for us? It never does, which is why we need someone who is bigger, stronger, more powerful, mightier. All of the analogies are, uh, what's the word? describing or adjective all of the adjectives that we can use to describe God we need him will what do you think I mean you said it <laughs> like I mean <laughs> I, I don't know what else there is to say to that like it, it, it's just like y'all both described I tend to think of it more going back to um, what we the the verse we talked about earlier where through one man sin entered the world and through sin death. Well, that's the ultimate punishment. Our, our sin causes death. And so from that standpoint, right, everyone's body is going to fail and die. So what's there to, to remain? And that would be the soul. And from that standpoint, God, yes, he can destroy the soul, Right? But the soul has to be punished, and so you have this this place uh, of eternal separation from God without God being there at all. And so it's because of that sin. So we're being saved, we're being cleansed of the sin, and we're being saved from that punishment that we completely deserve is the separation from God. He is perfect, holy, almighty, there's not enough words to describe how amazing and great he is. And so for us, because of our one sin, it can't even be in the presence of God. And so we, we deserve this punishment. And yet Jesus came, laid down his life, so that he could save us from that punishment and save us from that debt that we owe. And cleanses of those sins, wipe those sins, wipe the slate clean. So therefore, as the Father looks down on us, He doesn't see us and our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus. So that's why God sent His Son. The next line that we'll typically say is, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. Now why do we believe that? Let me ask you guys a question. Why do you believe that George, maybe I'm assuming you guys believe, but why do you guys assumedly believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Well, I, I never confessed to, that George Washington was the first. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I think it's, it's there. I mean, the evidence is there. The historical documents are there. Uh, anything that you would use uh, from a court case standpoint is there. And so it's... For me, it's the same way with Jesus. If you wanted to go down that road and you wanted to put in the research and you wanted to put in all the time, there was a man born in Nazareth 
named Jesus from a woman named Mary whose husband was named Joseph. Like, you can track that down. I'm not saying it's easy, but you can track that down. You can go to the tomb that is Jesus. You can go to the to Israel. You can go to the tomb. You can look in the tomb. You can see there's not a body there. There's so much evidence for Jesus that, to me, it's overwhelming from that standpoint. I don't know how you can look at it and not, not just say, you know, he was real. Well, and really all you have to do is, is pick a gospel. Mm-hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We've got four first-person eyewitness accounts of exactly what you're describing. You can go to any one of those books and reference it, and it's going to tell you about the life of Jesus Christ. Luke actually says that he has made a careful investigation of this. So pick one, read it, and it's going to validate who Jesus was, what he did. It's going to describe his ministries, and it's going to unpack everything that we're, we're talking about, all the way up to the point where Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our sins. Well, Chris? Can, can I add real quick? No, you may not. Oh, okay, that's fine. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm I'm shunned. <laughs> shunned from the mic. Um, You've been talking enough. Yeah, there you go. Uh, going back to what we had kind of talked about before, there is enough evidence there as well. Uh, it, you could win any court case. But there also, to me, there is a... To me, there is a, a physical, a personal, a, um, I, I don't want to say feeling. A conviction. Conviction, yes. And there is, some, there is something more than just saying, here's the evidence, there you go. There, and it goes back to that point where we were talking about, I said, starts in a pew. It, there has to be a conviction. I, you can run around... Every single day, you can you can do it all you want to. Say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. That could be the only words that you ever say out your entire life. But unless you're convicted, at that point, to me, there's no connection. It, the Bible says that even the demons believe. That's right. And so what separates that, that standpoint? Well, there has to be a... A chase, a, a conviction, a, a Jesus, the Holy Spirit showing up in that moment. So to me, you have this whole concrete evidence and you have all of that, but there also has to be that point where God has to step in and you know the Holy Spirit has to convict you. And not to not that we need to go down the predestination or free will debate. But there, to me, whether you believe whichever side, there's a God aspect of salvation where he shows up and it's not just the person making a decision, making a choice, saying a prayer, doing whatever. So I've added. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the evidence is definitely there. There's a great... Um, video that I always reference anytime I'm talking with new believers, it's more related to the validity of Scripture and the trustworthiness of Scripture. 
but it applies to this because the story of Jesus's crucifixion is in Scripture, right? And so, uh, but uh, there's a pastor named Vody Bakum who um, has a has a talk that is entitled "Why I Choose to Believe the Bible," and it is one of the best messages that I have ever heard about the historical evidence and the literary evidence and uh, just all of the different things that add up to convince us that what we believe about the Bible. Yes, it is a conviction, but there's more than just a feeling in it. It's not just, well, I woke up today and I felt like God was real and I felt like Jesus really went to the cross for me, but I have some things to like stand on in that and to know and be assured well, that what I believe is true. Well, because of that same message, he talks about how the Muslims yep. feel that they are yeah. right. He, yep. talk, he, he says exactly what yep. we're talking about. He, he talks about these two, and I would encourage you guys, I know we... Probably shouldn't market other people's stuff on our own <laughs> podcast, but go re- go listen to the message. Yeah, it's he's on. a lot smarter than we <laughs> he are. He is. Exactly. He's way smarter than we are. Yeah. But go just YouTube him, uh, Dr. Vody Bakum, uh, Why I Choose to Believe. But in there, he talks about the these two fallacies that we all kind of naturally go to when somebody says, hey, why do you believe what you believe? And a lot of times we do. Our default answer is, I tried it and it worked for me is one of the yeah, ones that he talks exactly about. That's exactly what he says. And, and, and there's this idea of like, well, what do you say to the Muslim who tried Islam and it worked for them? What do you say to the Buddhists who tried that and it worked for them? Like you can't, that's not a leg to stand on. Um, and so he does a great job. Again, I, it, it, it's a great message. Um, I would encourage anybody who's a believer to go listen to that. Uh, it will definitely reassure you of why we choose to believe what we believe about Scripture, which in turn helps us understand why we believe what we believe about Jesus' crucifixion. Um, and so I, I think the other side that I would say to that about just trusting Jesus' crucifixion that I've heard through messages, and I can't remember if Fody mentions it in that one or if it's a different message, but um, there's this idea of like the, what the 12 disciples did after Jesus' crucifixion, right? The 11 uh, that stayed. Judas obviously uh, is out of the picture at that point. They replace him. Uh, but these 12 men uh, then go on to live lives where they continue to profess this thing, that Jesus died and rose again. And it's like, if that had been a lie, there was no benefit to these men whatsoever for them to continue to, to confess that lie. Um, they all, with the exception of one or two of them, ended up dying a martyr's death and like, if that had been a lie, they would have given that up long before they would have ever faced yep. death as a consequence because they weren't receiving any financial gain from it. They weren't receiving any uh, worldly good from it. In fact, they lost family members. They lost jobs. They lost reputations. They lost, like, well, they, true persecution. Right. They lost everything in light of this. And, and anyone would tell you if it's a lie, you're not going to sacrifice all of that for a lie. You're going to, at some point, you give up that lie and you go, that's not worth it to me anymore. Yeah, I'll confess that wasn't really true. I think Jesus was a heretic, yeah. right? And it's like, but none of them ever did. They all followed through with that literally until their dying breaths. In which case, I have to go, man, if there's 12 men who were willing to sacrifice all of that in light of all the other evidence that's there, man, I go, yeah, why would you not believe that that happened? And you can take that to even into Acts. Um, <clears throat> I think it's five. We're going through it with the youth, but I can't remember all the all the things. I think it's five, but it's uh, Gamilia. Gamilia. Um, he was a Jewish Pharisee. Um, he he had nothing to do with Christianity. They had the disciples there on trial. Could have uh, really put punishment to them. And they were about to kill him, and so he 
basically told the other Pharisees, hey, whoa, whoa, let's hold off. Because if we do that, that just makes them martyrs. But we've seen it through other movements where if it is of God, it will continue. The other movements failed. Yeah. They, they stopped. But if this is really of God, then we can't stop it anyway. And if it's not of God, it'll stop on its own. We don't have to do anything. And this is a Jewish leader saying this. And this is, you know, 2,000 plus years ago. So from my standpoint, <clears throat> like you were saying, Chris, it's, it's one of those things where if a Jewish leader will say that 2,000 plus years ago, say the same statement, like if it's from God, it's going to continue. And we're still here talking about this guy named Jesus, talking about how he died on the cross. Eh, I it's think true. it's pretty real. So let's talk about what sets our beliefs apart from other beliefs and other religions and things like that. And that is, Will, you mentioned this earlier, it is the tomb. It is the grave. We believe, and a part of salvation is believing that he rose from the grave. Like, yes, it's great that he came to this world. Yes, it's great that he lived a perfect, sinless life for 33 years. Yes, it's great that he died a, a brutal, tragic death on the cross. But if it stopped there, it all stop, stops there. There's got to be a continuation. There's got to be a next piece, and that next piece is that belief that he did rise from the grave. If you go to the grave of Muhammad, he's there. If you go to the grave of Buddha, he's there. Will, you've already mentioned this, but if you go to the grave of Christ, there's a sign that says he is not here for he is risen. Why is it so important for us to, to have that belief in the resurrection? Well, it, it's the promise of eternal life. Jesus could have come and died and he could have died by any means he could have died by the cross could have died by the hanging could have died by the sword however he could have claimed to be dying for our sins all he wanted to but if there was no resurrection then there is no promise of eternal life he would just be another man who had showed up and died Yes, he might have been able to do these miraculous things. Yes, he might have taught like or teach like uh, no one else had ever, you know, taught anything. And he might have been able to do all of this stuff. But at the end of the day, there would be no resurrection, no promise of eternal life. And you have to have both. You have to have the payment for sin, but the promise for life. And it goes back to that punishment thing where the soul is is sent. We are bound for hell, fully separated from, from God. That's the punishment. Jesus dying and not uh, you know, coming back from the dead, coming God not resurrecting him out of the tomb just means that hey, he could be in this same place with us. And so from that standpoint it has to be both. Yeah, I, I think you could easily go to, again, uh, Paul, Paul's a pretty smart guy, man. Um, and so, like, none of these 
discussions are new. <laughs> None of these things to have to think through. That's what I love about Scripture so much is it's like if I have a question, I can just go to the Bible and there it is. But Paul, just one book over from the book we've been talking about so much. Uh, we've been in Romans a good bit tonight, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul simply says this. Um, he says um, he's talking about the resurrection from the dead in general, but then he applies it to the idea of whether or not Christ has been raised. Um, he says in verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. And so it's this idea of like, man, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, everything of what we're saying, everything that we believe is pretty worthless, and we have really lied about who God is. Uh, and then he goes on, he says, Because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And he keeps going, um, let's skip down a little bit, uh, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Uh, then those uh, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all uh, of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so, man, like Paul's addressing that. 2,000 years ago to one of the first churches that were planted through his movement of like, man, yeah, if res if Christ's resurrection or any resurrection is not possible, then what we preach and what we teach is pretty worthless, man. And and, and I love that term that he uses. He says, you are, we are the most pitiable. We, we should be most pitied for that because it's like, man, we have bought, we bought a lie and we are essentially living into something that is never going to give us what we think it's going to give us. But the truth is, Jesus did rise from the dead. There is an empty tomb. There is evidence that Jesus' body wasn't there. There is evidence that the disciples didn't steal the body and hide it. You know, there is evidence that all these things is, is accurate, or all these things are accurate. Um, and so we aren't pitied. In fact, we find joy and hope in that, and there is a future for us in that, not just here in this world and in this life, but in the afterlife for us as we look forward to eternity. Well, and it... It brings us back to to the next point. We've we've danced around this a good bit already, but there is that payment for sin piece. We have to acknowledge that. If if any of us were were here or at the grocery store or anywhere for that matter, and you came out to your car just smashed in the parking lot, what's your first reaction? Are you going to be like, ah, that's okay, no big deal? Or are you going to be like, no, somebody's got to pay for this and it's not going to be me? Well, it's kind of the same with our salvation and with the wrath of God, really. Someone had to pay for our sin. We could pay for it, just like we could pay for our smashed car, but it's not going to go very well for us. The way we pay for that sin is by going to hell, really. Or we can accept Christ's payment. And what happens when we accept Christ's payment is we get to go to heaven and we get to spend eternity with the Father. One really encouraging thing that I've heard is if we are saved on earth, this is the closest we're ever going to be to hell. But the flip side of that coin is if we're not saved, this is the closest we're ever going to make it to heaven. And that's, that's scary to me. If, if, if I'm not a saved person and this is the closest I'm ever going to be to heaven, that incentivizes me, that motivates me to make sure I am saved so that there is a better eternity for me to come. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's the only reason that you get saved by any means, but it's at least 
a motive. It's at least a reason, another reason why you would choose to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I, I think that that's, that's huge to understand that, man, if this is the closest I'm going to get to heaven, and especially for guys, Wes, like you and you and Jeff, who have to work in the heat all day long, <laughs> five yeah. days a week, I'm like, y'all need a break, bro. <laughs> I'm all about the heaven train. Uh, man, let's get to those... Uh, uh, those glassy more. seas, man. I hope they're pretty cool and easy to swim in, man. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that we do have to talk about the hope and the glory of heaven. You, and you do have to, to talk about the idea that there is this place called hell. And, and that is the consequence to sin for us. Like, that is it. And we don't have a way to pay that on our own. Going back well, to... The, the maxed out credit card that you were speaking right? about. I have no way of paying that debt. That debt has to be paid by someone else. But I think it also speaks to the character of God. I like that you brought up the idea of wrath in that because a lot of people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We like to talk about God as being all loving. We like to think yeah. about him as like this righteous God. We like to think of him as like king and Lord and all these like beautiful, majestic words. And but I then can there's imagine like Jesus need <laughs> a little baby. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this whole aspect of God, this this character trait that is intrinsic to him, that this idea of his wrath. And I, as I've taught on wrath in the past, I, I I love the idea of understanding that the people who we love the most are the people that are also the most capable of receiving our wrath. In other words, if I don't know someone and they wrong me in some way, I'm going to be mad. Like if I come out and it, the, the broken windshield and it's a stranger at Walmart who broke my windshield, I'm ticked. And I'm like, bro, you need to pay for my windshield. But like, I'm not going to like pour out my wrath on this guy. But if, but if there is someone in my life who I love deeply and, and have poured my life out for them, and, and this is someone who I, I, I adore and have affection for, and they have chosen to walk away from me in that. They have chosen a different life than what I want for them. They're, I am more apt to have this idea of wrath in my life. They're going to receive more wrath from me than just Joe Schmo who accidentally cracked my windshield at Walmart, right? And so... It, the same is true inside of God's character. Because God is all loving, he also has to have the flip side of that character trait that he is a God of wrath. And when there is, when there are things that don't line up with who he is, if he isn't wrathful, he also isn't loving. Uh, and we have to understand that. Even as a dad, as I raise my kids, like I am not a loving dad if every once in a while I don't deal out consequences to my children. Yeah. Right, And through those consequences, I display my wrath. That doesn't mean I come in and abuse my kids, yeah. but there is consequence for their actions. And if I don't deal out those consequences, I am not a just father, I'm not a righteous father, and I'm also not a loving father when I don't do those things. And so we have to understand that when God says, when Scripture teaches us things and God says things like uh, the, the punishment for your sin is, is separation from me, it is death, right? Like it's hell. That is not God becoming less loving. It is actually God displaying his love all the more in that he is a just and righteous father who says there was a sin, there, there was a misstep, there is a wrongdoing. And if I'm going to remain just and righteous and loving, a consequence has to be paid for that. Now, because God is loving, he also provided a way for that to be taken out on himself through his son Jesus which also speaks even all the more to, to his love. I preached a message just a couple weeks ago uh, about the idea that, man, if, if God had just wiped the slate clean for us without paying for the sin, it would take away God's ability to claim to be righteous and just. 
if God had just snapped his finger and said, oh, it's okay that you ate from this tree that I told you not to eat from. Like, oh, it's okay that you've looked at a screen and watched some things that you shouldn't have watched when you thought nobody was looking. Or, oh, it's okay that you've been an abusive husband or father. Or, oh, it, you know, like whatever. Like if God just wiped all that away without the payment of that sin being made, God is no longer righteous, just, or loving. Well, you use a lot of really good words there, and it reminds me of this song that's much older than Duncan, who's, <laughs> who's not here tonight. It's older than the year 2000, but, yeah. but it's, it's, it is an old song, and, and Duncan, I would encourage you to learn this song and even for us to sing it for some of our older congregation members who, who probably know this song, but it's, it's called His Robes for Mine, and it says, a couple of the lyrics say, his robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. And then if you read down a little bit further, or sing down a little bit further, I guess, it <laughs> says, His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father pleased. Christ drank God's wrath of sin, then cried, "'Tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won." And that's a big word, but it's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, and <clears throat> like Chris was saying, uh, the, the cool thing there is just. It, he is a just God. It, it kind of reminds me of here in... Here in the U.S., you know, we have the, um, for law stuff, you have the statue of the blindfolded, uh, I think it's a woman holding the scales, right? The scales of justice, I think is what it's called or whatever, all right? And so that's the way it is. For God to be just, he has to have both love and wrath. There, it's, it's an equal and opposite. Everything's perfectly balanced when it comes to God. It's the same way with hell. Hell is not there solely. Um, it, it, hell came into play because of our sin. God is perfect and holy, and he cannot be in the sight of sin. He can't be around it. So there has to be a place for sin. Where God is, it's love and pure and holy. Hell is completely the opposite. There is an equal and opposite. God, great, eternal life, forever, amazing, streets of gold. I could keep going on and on and on and on, right? Hell, completely opposite. Burning, raging fire, torment, a place of gnashing of teeth. It's... God completely separated from that sin. And there has to be that. Because for those who do believe, if he wasn't just, that means everybody gets in. That means that there is, it's, it's wishy-washy at best. You don't know if he's going to let you in because he loved you, or you don't know if he's going to kick everybody else, or kick everybody out because he was upset with you. It, it's, it's a, it's a wishy-washy thing. There's never a true... Uh, salvation, and again, not to run down some of these other topics, but within Islam, I think it is that way, right? So they work, but there's not an assurance that they will be 
able to go into heaven. Now, don't quote me on that. I've never really put the research in and studied that, but that's what I've heard. And so from that standpoint, there's never a complete assurance on that. However, for us, Jesus says, you believe you're saved, right? Again, I'm not... That, don't quote me that that's all you got to do. Well, that's the whole point of what we're talking through. Just trying to speed this up. <laughs> but, you know, from that, from that we go, Jesus says, believe, you're saved. There's assurance. There is, there is 100% guarantee when Jesus rose again, going back to that point, when Jesus rose again, right, we have that assurance that we'll do the same thing because he said it. He said it. We've got 100%. It's written down as, as you want to go. Uh, your name is written down. And, um, and so from there, there is no way. Uh, there, that's, that's the only just way. Like we have that assurance. We have that knowledge, that 100% guarantee. And we also have the guarantee that, that the people who didn't live like that, and I, I don't want to hate on anybody, but the people who never made the choice to follow Jesus, they can't get in. We, we made a choice. We did it the way Jesus clearly stated. If God was unjust, he'd just let him come on in. Well, and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the conversation because there has to be a declaration. And one of the ways that we typically end that prayer or come to an end of that prayer is, I declare you as Lord. Chris, why don't you tell us what Lord is? Yeah, so we have talked a lot about like leading children and youth in these conversations. And a lot of times when I'm counseling, especially a youth through this idea of making Jesus your Lord, is I, I try to talk to them about the idea of kingdoms, where it's like if I lived in the kingdom of Chris, <laughs> right? But decided I wanted to leave that kingdom and go join a different kingdom, the kingdom of Wes, right? Then for that to happen, what I have to do is go to that kingdom. First of all, I have to walk into the presence of whoever the ruler of that kingdom is, and I have to be willing to submit to the way and the will of that king inside of that kingdom. Otherwise, I'm not really a member of that kingdom, right? Which is where Jesus comes in and says, a lot of people will cry out to me, but they're not saved. They're, they're not who they say they are. Um, I'm, I'm in the kingdom, but I'm not a part of the kingdom, right? I attend church. I do all these things, but I'm not really following Jesus. And so when I talk to kids and youth about this idea of making Jesus your Lord, it's like, man, like you've got to come into God's kingdom and you've got to be willing to say to him, you are now the king of my life. Your commands, your decrees, your will, your way, not mine. And I am submitting myself to you as the ruler of all that I am. And so, again, it goes back to this idea that, yes, we've talked about this prayer and this confession and all of these things, but that prayer and that confession takes us nowhere if we haven't truly believed what we've said. If it was just a bunch of words, if it was just a feeling in a moment and we walked an aisle and said a prayer with a pastor— but we haven't truly made Jesus the Lord of our life, then we have essentially done nothing but waste a bunch of time, right? A lot of old pastors would say, you just came out of the baptistry a wet sinner, right? Like that's all you did. And so we, we have to understand that when we come to Jesus in these moments and when we confess him as our Lord, 
what we're doing through these words, what we're doing through this prayer is declaring that from this point forward in my life, my will and my way is laid down to and submitted to Jesus's will and his way. In fact, there's a, an incredible uh, word picture out there of this idea of getting on your face before God. And, and I use this a lot, again, when I talk to teenagers. It's like when you get on your face before somebody, it's this idea that you have literally put yourself in a position of weakness and have allowed them complete authority over whether or not your life continues or not. In other words, if uh, Wes is a good bit stronger than I am, and so if Wes was in the room and I came before Wes and I laid flat on my stomach, flat on my face before Wes, palms to the ground, like just flat on my stomach, if Wes determined in that moment that Chris Bates should not live anymore and he decided to attack me in that moment, there's not much I could do, right? I've placed myself in a position of weakness and have literally trusted Wes with the outcome of my life in that moment. That's the idea of making Jesus our Lord. It's like we get on our face before him and we literally say, my life is yours to do with as you please. If you want to give me 50 more years on this earth, great. I will live it out according to your rules and your decrees and your commands and what you've taught me. If you want to take my life today, then so be it, God. Like Paul's words, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Like if you take me home today, God, I submit to that. And it's, it's what you want for me. And that's the difference between just saying a prayer and really confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord. It takes us from this idea of just, I said a magical set of words and now I don't have to go to hell. It takes me from that to, no, I have submitted my life to Jesus and every decision I make from this point forward, every breath I take, every day I live is according to his plan and his purposes for me at this point. Well, it's that, that ultimate surrenderance. Will, I know that you're the evangelist, <laughs> and I know that this really strikes a chord with you. I don't know how much more we can add to, to what Chris has already said, but there is that surrenderance. There is that peace where you make Jesus the Lord or the ruler or the master over every single detail and piece of your life. Is there anything that you want to add? I, I like how Chris was speaking in that, where it's a complete, like, just face out, face down, you know, like, completely laid out. My life is in your hands. Uh, I, not much more that you can add to that. I, I think it's completely that way. It's here's everything I have on just as moving from one kingdom to another. It's it's a complete, like, here's everything it's up to you whether you, you know, you accept it, you reject it, you push it out, you push me away. It's complete. It's all your decision, whatever you want to do. And it's that complete just laying it all out there. Here I am. Uh, and then at that point, we literally invite Jesus to come into our life and take over. Yeah. There's, you know, back in the 90s, I remember seeing license plates on, on fronts of Buicks and it would say, God is my co-pilot. And then pastors would say, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. Because God is supposed to be the pilot. He's supposed to be the one driving your life. He's supposed to be the one in complete control. It completely. And, and one thing that I'll add to that surrendering piece, and, and kind of this as a whole, that is one thing that I specifically say to anybody who... I walk through this process of, of salvation is that when we get to the end 
I tell them, listen, I can tell you based upon what you've done that you have done the criteria to have salvation. But I, and I, I almost do it to a fault because one thing that always scares me would be to stand up and say, this person's saved when I have no clue. So I always make it a point to say, you've done what you've needed to to be saved, but I have no clue. It's between you and God. If your heart was in the position of, hey, this is full surrender, I'm laying it out there, then yes, you, you've, you're saved, you don't ever have to worry about it, you have eternal life. If it was, I'm scared, this hell place looks scary, I don't want to go there, Just and I don't mean to hate on fire and brimstone preachers, um, but because uh, the Bible speaks more towards hell than it does towards heaven. But from that standpoint, I don't want to ever scare anybody into saying a prayer. Because to me, yes, there can be true salvation out of that, but the more likelihood is that there's not. And so I never want to scare somebody. I, I want them to, I, I don't have any part in it. I hope God convicts them. I think that's the better way to say that. I hope that there's conviction in their life. I hope that their heart really was in a place of, I'm just laying it out here for you. And so with that, I, I, I just wanted to add that that is something that I will say. It's like, if your heart wasn't in the right place, you're not saved. Just specifically so, if it is a, a child or a teen or whatever, they're not going to come back to me 30 years down the road and say, you said I was saved. Nope, never said it, didn't happen. I said, you did what you were supposed to to be saved, but your heart, because I don't want them to ever say, well, this pastor said this, and, and then all of a sudden, here we are, uh, 30 years later, 40 years later, 60 years later, where they think they're good, they're sitting in a pew, they think they're worshiping God, and they've never had a true connection with God. They've never had uh, a true moment where they've just laid it all out there for him. And so they're bound for hell, and they think they're, they got the golden ticket. And, and I never want that to come back on me. Chris, any, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I think just to, number two things. Number one, I, I think that I want to caution people that attending a church service and being in a small group or a life group and studying the Bible and praying does not equate to salvation. And going back to the kingdom idea, that's me walking through a kingdom and having permission to just because I'm inside the walls of the kingdom doesn't make me a citizen of that kingdom. Um, just because I shopped through their market doesn't give me the benefit of the citizens of that same area. And so there is a citizenship process to being a part of the kingdom of heaven that you've got to walk through. This prayer, the sinner's prayer, is a, is a part of that process, but again, nothing magical about the words. It is about this idea of, do I understand that Jesus is my Lord? Have I submitted myself to him? And so just because you attend a church somewhere, just because you're in a small group or um, uh, maybe even lead a small group, um, doesn't necessarily equate to the fact, going all the way back to Will's statistic at the beginning, 75% of the people in our church or in any church 
believe that they're saved, but probably haven't really submitted their life to Jesus the way that they need to. That's a staggering statistic. So I think that that's number one. Number two, I want to talk for just a second about the assurance of that. The scripture is very clear that there are ways that we can know whether or not we are saved. And so I don't want people to hear this podcast and walk away from it going, well, daggummit, I don't think I'm yeah. saved. <laughs> right? like, Wes told me. Wes told me that, well, I'm not saved anymore. Way to go, Wes. Um, so I don't want you to walk away going, man, I don't know that I am or if I am. Um, there are things that Scripture teaches us will be assurance of our salvation. One of those things is what they call the fruit of the Spirit. And it's like when we are connected to Jesus, uh, the word that Scripture uses, when, when we abide in Jesus, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And when we are attached to the branch the way that we're supposed to be, or when we're attached to the vine, rather, the way that we're supposed to be, fruit will be produced, and there's no way around that. And so when we think about the things that Scripture says will be produced, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if I see those fruits beginning to be created in me, not of my own will and of my own doing, but just as a byproduct of me walking with Jesus— chances are very good that I have fully submitted my life to Jesus. But if I look at my life and go, sure, I go to church and I pray and I read the Bible, but I don't see a ton of the fruit being displayed in me. There's a good chance that I'm a false branch, that I'm not really abiding in the vine, um, and my life is not really saved at that point. And so uh, I just want to encourage people to do a really good self-checkup of the fruit of the Spirit and really look at your own life and go, Scripture tells me that it is uh, by grace, through faith that I'm saved, and the evidence of that is that the good works will be there. The good works don't save me, but they are the evidence of the fact that I have walked through the door of faith to receive God's grace and his salvation. So look at your fruit. That'll give you a real quick indication of whether or not you're saved. It's good, good stuff. And then in closing, anytime I lead someone in the sinner's prayer, I start with the name of Jesus and I like to end with the name of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So as we close this episode, as Chris said, really do some self-evaluation and weigh your own fruit and see where you stand. I hope this podcast has kind of made some things a little bit more clear to you. Um, I hope that it has affirmed your salvation and given you that assurance. And if it has caused any questions or concerns, feel free to reach out to any one of us. We would be more than happy to talk you through any, any aspect of this conversation on a one-to-one -one, uh, basis. And then the last part is go out and share it with somebody else. Go share the good news of salvation. Go share the gospel message with somebody else and just tell them why you believe what you believe and hopefully this podcast has been a resource and a tool to help you be able to do that. We love you. We'll see you next week. Hey, youth leaders, the evangelist William Orr here. Are you looking to do something this fall with your students? Well, have I got the thing for you. Go check out fusionconferences.org. We have a conference coming up this October. Registration ends September the 13th. It's $40 for students and $25 for volunteers. If you can't quite make it this fall, we also have one coming up in the spring. But check out fusionconferences.org to find out all the details.